0: The book of James, the book of James tonight, start our Bible study here for the next several weeks. Book of James, we have a new prayer list starting tonight as well, you'll notice that it's changed and try to make you more aware of some of the things that we'd like you to be praying for as far as upcoming activities, not only uh, our regular prayer list, on the back you'll find all of our missionaries are listed. And uh, you can be in prayer for them as well. All right, and so Pastor McPherson will come at the end of the service and give you a missionary moment, share a prayer letter with you, and then take our prayer request for this evening. If you have a prayer request, uh, please submit that to the office. And what we're going to do from now on is we're going to leave prayer requests on the bulletin for four weeks, all right? If after four weeks we haven't heard an update or anything, we'll take it off. uh, Because sometimes somebody will give a request. We'll have a visitor give a request. We don't know who it belongs to, and then it stays on there for three years. And then, you know, the person's gone to heaven, or they've gotten better and gone home, or what have you. And so um, we'll, we'll just leave them on there for four weeks. You can leave it on there for months if you want. Just update us, all right? Just let us know. If you come to a prayer meeting, raise your hands. I'd like it on there for a little bit longer. Whatever. That would be fine. But please just let the office know or let us know during the prayer meeting to leave that prayer request on for a little bit longer. But that'll just help us in the maintenance of the prayer list, all right? Book of James tonight. We're going to start in the book of James. Now, you should have received a handout that had a handout with inside the handout. How many of you got two of those? Everybody got one tonight? How many need one? If you need one, please lift up your hand and we'll get those to you right now. All right, the outer jacket that you received, if you want to pull that off first, all right, over here we need a couple, if you'll pull that off first, that's our introduction to the book of James. There's some introductory remarks and there's some background on the book, and I wanted to uh, kind of pull that out and and make that separate uh, for the reason, um, if I were to try to teach that and take the time to teach that, it'd take us a whole night to teach that. And so I'm just going to, we're just going to read through it quickly so you can get the information and you can take the handout home and keep that. And then we'll go to the second handout and that'll be our first lesson for this, for this night. All right. So let's, let's start with that first handout that it's in paragraph form and we're looking at James chapter one and let's read together just verse one. All right. That's our introductory verse. Unlike some of the other epistles that take a whole paragraph or several verses, James just has one verse of introduction. And so we're just going to get that verse, give you some background, then we'll move on into our lesson, verses 2 through 16. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. It doesn't say a whole lot about about the apostle there, but we do know from other parts of scripture a little bit about him, so let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Help us, Lord, as we continue or start our theme for this year of GROW. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to grow up in Christ and grow up in our faith as we studied the book of James for this first quarter. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us, Lord, to learn and to apply the truths that are hidden there. And, Father, may our faith increase. Father, fill me. I need your help as we communicate the truth of God's Word. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit, we pray. And may the Spirit of God teach each one and help each one. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so our format for this study is going to be much the same as you see tonight. So I say that to let you know, bring a pen with you to Bible study or a pencil uh, that you can take notes and mark things down. I try uh, to the best as I can to leave you enough room on that second handout to make other notes as you hear things or verses that you would like to mark down. So James is the author of the book. Now look what it says in our notes, first of all. We'll just read through it quickly and maybe pause and make a couple comments. Who wrote the book? James did not specifically identify himself as to which James he was. The author is widely thought to be James the half-brother of Jesus. James was not a follower of Jesus during the Savior's time on Earth. Now think about that. Mark chapter three, verses 31 through 35, and John chapter seven and verse five are, are parallel passages of the same time where Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and somebody says to him, "How many of you remember this?" Your mother and your brethren are without. You remember that. And they, they did not believe that Jesus Christ, at least the brethren did, and his mother did of course, at Cana of Galilee, she knew very well who she was. She remembered the angels' announcements from his birth, and so Mary knew who he was. But James was unbelieving. That's, that's amazing to me, to think that he grew up in the house with Jesus Christ. He saw this young man with incredible character, integrity, and a a superior knowledge to anybody he ever came in contact with. You remember when he was 12 years old, he was lecturing the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple. So for him to grow up with Jesus, I I believe that James was likely at the wedding at the Cana of Galilee because it was a family event. and, And so Mary was there, and I believe the brethren were there. And Jesus turned water to wine. And yet James did not believe it was not until after his resurrection that the Bible shows us, and we'll look at that verse a little bit later on, that James became a follower of Jesus Christ and eventually became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And that's why it's believed he wrote this book, because of some of the context, as well as some of the things from a pastor's perspective to his people. So eventually he became an apostle in the vein of Paul, as one who had seen and believed the Lord post-resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15, 7 and Galatians 1, 19. Both speak about James' position as one that had seen the Lord alive and was now going forward and preaching the gospel. He was witness of the resurrection. After witnessing the Lord's resurrected body, James became one of the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Peter singled him out among the other Christians there following Peter's miraculous release from prison in Acts chapter 12. James made the deciding speech at the Jerusalem council in James chapter 15. And Paul called James one of the pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. So where are we historically? When was the book of James written? It is likely that the book of James was the first New Testament book written. You say, why? Because in Acts chapter 15, the council that that it referred to in the first paragraph there uh, at the church of Jerusalem was whether or not They should take the gospel to the Gentiles. Think about that. Can you imagine if we had next Sunday, we said we're going to have a church business meeting and we're going to decide whether or not we send missionaries out. You'd think we'd lost our marbles, hadn't you? But back in the first century church, the gospel was to the Jew first. And this was a novel idea. Paul had been preaching and he came back and he testified to the church of Jerusalem that in fact the the Gentiles could receive the gospel and they had received the gift of the Holy Ghost by evidence of tongues and that was a sign against their unbelief. And so they had this council, And James stood up and he preached and cast that deciding vote, if you will, that this is in fact the right thing to do, to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul... And others were ordained to the gospel ministry and sent out to the Gentile world. And so it was James that was there at that council uh, in the church of Jerusalem. So you can read that. and, And so it's likely, though, that the book of James was written before the gospels. You say, why? Because there's no mention of the Gentiles in the book of James. He is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, so his converts are all Jewish converts. But there's no mention at all about giving the gospel to the Gentile world. And so it's believed that it was written before that council, which means it would have also predated most of the gospels. So it's sometime between the years of 45 and 48. Now why is James so important? Look at the third paragraph with me. The book of James looks a bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, dressed up in New Testament clothes. In other words, it's a book about wisdom. It's consistent focus on practical action in the life of faith is reminiscent of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament encouraging God's people to act like God's people. The pages of James are filled with direct commands to pursue a life of holiness. He makes no excuses for those who do not measure up. In the mind of this early church leader, Christians evidenced their faith by walking in certain ways and not others. For James, a faith that does not produce real life change is a faith that is dead. And James chapter 2, verse 17, of course, says, Faith without works is dead. We often think of the Apostle Paul as somebody that spoke very harshly at times, but I don't believe he could hold a candle to James. James was very no nonsense. And as we read the book of James, it seems like he comes across more gracious, but in the sense of that day that he lived in, he was very direct, very to the point. If you have faith without works, your faith is dead. If you are doing nothing to prove that you are a child of God, nothing to serve Christ, then you have no faith at all. Your faith must be an active faith. And so what's the big idea or what's the theme? In the opening of this letter, James calls himself a servant of God. That's an appropriate name given the practical servant-oriented emphasis of the book. That's what the book is. It's wisdom, but it's for us to grow up and to mature to become servants of Jesus Christ. And I think we ought to understand that, that God calls us all to be servants, but that does not mean we must not invest in ourselves in the sense by training in God's Word and growing and learning that we might be the best servants that we can be. All right, look at the second paragraph there. For James' faith was not abstract, but it had effects in the real world. James' preaches and teaches, as you will find out in the next 10 weeks, that our faith must be active. Faith does not just sit in a pew, all right? Faith does not, you say, well, I got, at least i got enough faith to go to church. You're, you're absolutely right. A lot of people don't even have enough faith, take them to church. But faith doesn't just sit in a pew. Faith is active. Faith affects every area of our life. I'm going to read a quote later on tonight in the, in the lesson from John Phillips. He's an expositor of a, he has a commentary out there. And I, w- I want you to understand some of the things he talks about in this quote. It's just one paragraph. How the our faith must touch every part of our life. It is a radical transformation when you get saved. And we are to be completely different. So, how do we apply this? More than any other book in the New Testament. James places the spotlight on the necessity for believers to act in accordance with our faith. How well do your actions mirror the faith that you proclaim? This is a question that we all struggle to answer well, and so we'd like to point to all the ways our faith and works overlap, but too often we only see gaps and crevices. And so as we read the letter from James, focus on those areas that he mentions your actions during trials your treatment of those less fortunate, the way you speak and relate to others, and the role that money plays in how you live your life. Allow James to encourage you to do good according to the faith that you proclaim. So let's take out that handout now. That's our introduction. You can take it home and read it more thoroughly. I just kind of briefly glanced at it. But let's look at James chapter 1, verses 2-16. through 16. Take out the second handout, and there's going to be several blanks for you to fill in as we go tonight. My brethren counted all joy... When ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be a perfect and entire wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death do not err my beloved brethren james starts out his letter to these brethren and these tribes obviously the jews when he says tribes which are scattered abroad and he starts out with the christians battle the christians battle that's roman numeral one in your notes the christians battle all throughout the bible or all throughout the book of james you will find this theme the christian and his battles next week we'll look at the christian and his bible How do we relate to the scriptures? And so tonight though, it's the Christian and his battles, and we see that part of the battles that we face are the testings of the Christian life, the testing of the Christian life. And we see that in verses 2 through 12, and I want you to notice that the apostle tells us first of all tonight that the testing is for a purpose. The testing is for a purpose. God does not allow trials into our lives without a purpose, There's a reason that God allows testing to come into the believers' lives. And sometimes we suffer from persecution. That's from without. That's from unbelievers. But sometimes we suffer from testing or temptations, as the Bible says. And those are things that God has allowed in order to strengthen us and help us. They have a very definite purpose. And so let's look at these purposes tonight. First of all, testing for a purpose. First of all, for our enlargement. For our enlargement to improve us, to broaden us, to help us to grow, if you will. And that's what enlargement means, is to help us to grow. Look at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So already you're growing. The trying of your faith... Worketh patience. One of the things that impressed me and uh, as, as you visit in a, a senior's home or you visit in a nursing home, and I, I remember very clearly Mrs. Armchuck when her daughter went home to be with the Lord. And I, I went and saw Mike and Mary that day and she had died of cancer. And they're in the nursing home and Mike was in pretty good health. He was there more for his wife. And I said to, to Mary, I said, how are you doing today, Mary? And she says, Oh, I'm doing okay. She had Alzheimer's and wasn't sure if she understood the gravity of the situation and what it had taken place. And I said, did they tell you what had happened? I would brought her some flowers. And I said, have, have, have they told you what's going on? And I didn't know if anybody even been there yet. And she said, yes, my daughter passed away today. And I said, how are you doing with that? And she says, oh, I don't worry. I just pray. I don't worry. I just pray. About two weeks later, her husband had to go in for a hernia operation. And the operation wasn't the scary part. The scary part was leaving her alone. That's what really bothered him. And, and so I went up and I said, well, we'll check on her every day. We'll make sure somebody's going in from the church and checking on her. And So I went up and he was going off for the surgery and I actually was, I think I was giving him a ride down to the hospital to, to get him settled in. His daughter had died. He had nobody there uh, that lived close. And so I went and I picked him up and I said, you're going to be okay, Mary. She goes, oh, I don't worry. I just pray. But you could see she lived it. You see, the trying of our faith, work with patience, but she didn't get there without some trials in her life first, without some things in her life that caused her some stress, that caused her faith to be tested, and to cause her to grow to this place of patience. And so our lives are enlarged when we are tried. Trials tend to move us, first of all. You'll see that the first blank there. Trials move us for our enlargement. They get us out of the ruts. How many of you ever notice that when a trial comes, it's usually when you're standing still and you think everything's going just fine? That's when the devil attacks, isn't it? We get into that rut, everything's routine, and uh, we get up every day, we go to work, we read our Bibles, we do everything we're supposed to be doing, and then bam, out of the blue, something happens. Well, trials can be a good thing because they move us. They cause us to react. Now, to react in in the wrong way is not good, but to react in a good way, it, it will cause your faith to grow. And that's what enlargement is, is to to grow. You'll either become bitter or better from trials. You'll either be strengthened or soured. The word temptation is a word that means trials in the sense of one who tries gold by fire. One who tries gold by fire has two purposes. One, to remove the impurities, and secondly, also to assess its value. It is said that an old-time artisan could take gold and put it in a fire and can tell by the glow what kind of gold it was and how pure it was, and he could assess a carat value to it by the glow of the fire. And that's what the trial of our faith does. It assesses the value of our faith. It shows us who we really are and what we are in the time of testing. So it enlarges us by moving us, but it also to mellow us, to mellow us. Often we look at trials and we ask God, why? There's a purpose, and the scripture implicitly states that the patience is a purpose of trials. That there's a reason for it. Let me ask you this. Some of you have got a few years behind you. Do you react the same way today as you did 30 years ago when you first got saved? Has your patience grown? Have you mellowed? That's a good word, isn't it, Brother Bousfield? Have you mellowed? I can't imagine a more mellow guy than you, to be honest with you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I remember uh, going off to Bible college and Dr. Strachan wanted me to give a testimony one night, and he sucked his head out the door and he says, "Hey, Ali, He says, "You're going back to college. You're going to give a testimony tonight?" Or he said, "Would you like to give a testimony tonight?" And I said, "No." He says, "You misunderstand me. You're giving a testimony tonight." And boy, you got them, you know, Joe, did you ever get those eyes? You always behaved in church, right? He could take out a whole row of teens with just one look. All of you know what I'm talking about. And, but a couple years later, I came back from college, and I worked on staff with Dr. Strachan, and he mellowed. It just seemed as he got older, he just kind of got more relaxed and more mellowed. And I, I got to be honest, I was afraid of messing up. You can imagine. I was afraid of messing up. But the first time I messed up, I went in and said, Doc, I guess, I don't know, I was trying to do this and it didn't work out, whatever. And he said, Oh, that's okay. Don't worry about that. My fear is relieved. People mellow because of trials. We don't always make that connection, do we? But the trying of our faith worketh patience. Think about this you are what you are today because of the trials you've experienced. You've either become better or you've become bitter. You've become strengthened or you've become soured. But in the long run, the purpose of them is to make you better. That's God's desire. So they move us, they mellow us, and thirdly, they mature us. They mature us. Look at verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word perfect means complete. Entire means whole. In other words, you're growing into what God wants you to be. And so when we have trials, what's the Bible tell us to do? Count it all joy. Because here I get to grow again. I mean, we don't relish it while we're going through it. If you're in a hospital room, you're not, you're not relishing the trial. And if you're being uh, hurt by a neighbor, you're not relishing the trial. And if you're struggling financially, you're not relishing that trial. Uh, but we, we trust in God who is in control of all those things. And by putting our faith in Him, it, it, you, see, you understand that trials teach us to rely upon Him more. And that through it our faith grows and we become more patient. Romans 8:28 says and we know all things work together for good. We just have to believe that to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Consider this. Temptations are allowed allowed, I didn't say caused, allowed by a loving heavenly father who is too caring to be unkind and too wise to make any mistakes. That's who's allowing a temptation or a trial in our lives. If you're wondering how much patience you need to develop, think of this. God is never in a hurry. He can allow that trial to stay until we learn our lesson. It's best that we learn patience. So, trials are there for a purpose. First, for our enlargement. Secondly, letter B, for our enlightenment. Our enlightenment. What's enlightenment mean? It means it helps us to see something. It reveals something to us. So trials, first of all, they help us to grow, they enlarge us, but secondly, they enlighten us, they help us to see what we really are. It's a good test or a gauge for us every once in a while to see how far has our faith come. Maybe you've said something like this to yourself, you know, if this had happened 10 years ago, I wouldn't have handled this very well. I'm sure you've all been there. That's Growth. And that's enlightenment. But here's some other things it shows us. It shows us that we are to l- lean upon the Lord a little bit more. Look at the passage says in verse five: If any man of you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Where do we turn when there's trials? What is a sign of our growing faith? We turn to God. I was in a church in Springfield, Missouri, when I was in Bible College, Hillside Baptist Church. And I can remember a gentleman that came down to that altar every single service. Every service. He wasn't showy. He wasn't looking for attention. Just every single service he went down to that altar. And the pastor knew what his burden was and what he was praying about. He, he, he was aware of it. Nobody else was. It's just something he'd shared with the pastor. Once in a while, the pastor would go down and pray with him. Sometimes the assistant pastor, I maybe Gerald knew as well, I'm not sure. He'd go down and he'd pray with him. But I remember one night after the service, going out for pizza with the pastor and his family, and the family had a couple teenagers, and the one teenager said, boy, that guy really must lack faith. He's having to go down to that altar every week and pray for the same thing and ask God. He says, boy, when, when's he just going to grow up and His dad wisely said, Oh no, son, you've got it all backwards. That man has incredible faith. He has the faith to believe that God's going to hear him every time he prays. You see, that's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of strength when we go to God. When we ask God for wisdom. The Bible says, if any of you ask any of you lack wisdom, let them ask of God. Anybody here lack wisdom? Don't raise your hand. I guarantee, as soon as you think you got it all figured out, there'll be a new trial tomorrow that you don't understand. I I would dare say there's some here tonight that that were alive 50 years ago. You say, We couldn't even foresee the things that are going on today. It's ridiculous. The thing that they talked about in secret 50 years ago, they're parading down the streets now with. It's ridiculous. Do you lack wisdom in some areas? Ask of God. So, first of all, we see, number one, wisdom is required. Wisdom required for our enlightenment. It helps us to see that we need God, that we need wisdom. Even spirit-filled Christians who have dealt with much adversity in their lives can be stung from time to time with a new trial requiring added wisdom. Again, they enlighten us to our need to turn to God afresh and anew and seek His wisdom. Jeremiah 32, the Bible says this, Behold, I am the Lord the God of all flesh, is there anything too hard for me? Go to God with whom the Bible says nothing is impossible. So we see wisdom is required and secondly, wisdom requested. The Bible says, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. God wants you to come through him when you're going through a trial. He wants you to come and request and ask. They say, "Oh, but won't God get upset that I've that I've dropped the ball again? That I'm up, that I'm having a problem?" He says, "No." He says, "And upbraideth not." God's not going to rebuke you for coming to Him. He'll forgive you if you've made a mistake, and He'll give you wisdom on how to deal with the situation. Praying and seeking God are the only successful ways to live. It's the only way. It's the only way a Christian can navigate life, and those who refuse to talk for God and to seek His wisdom uh, with their trials that they'll handle, they'll handle those trials with bitterness, anger, gossip, slander, hatred, and issues unresolved. That's how you'll deal with temptations and trials if you don't go after God's wisdom and seek after Him. So wisdom must be requested. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, Wearing greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, that trial that you're going through is an opportunity for God to get glory. But we must seek out His wisdom by seeking out Him. And then we see thirdly, wisdom received. Look at verse five again. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And look what it says, and it shall be given him. There's no ambiguity about that statement, is there? It's just very direct. It shall be given to him. Now there are some conditions that follow, but if we ask in the right way and we seek after God properly, God will give us wisdom. God will help us deal with that situation. God does not scold us for lack of wisdom said, is his desire and plan for our lives that we live reliant upon him. Think about this verse in Psalm 103 verse 14. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. That's why he upbraideth not. He knows that we are weak children coming to him in need of wisdom. And so the Bible says that he will give it to us liberally and he'll give it to us gladly. Now here's what I told you about that quote John Phillips said about wisdom. Listen to this. Much of the wisdom that we need and for which we pray is to be found in his word. It is already ours, available to us, in hundreds of precepts, proverbs, parables, and principles. Solomon wrote a whole book of proverbs, pithy sayings full of distilled wisdom of heaven for life on earth. The parables of the Lord Jesus are gems of wisdom. The great principles unfolded in both the Sermon on the Mount and the Epistles are sublime. The Bible is full of wise counsel. It speaks authoritatively to all aspects of human life. It deals with our social life, our secular life, and our spiritual life. It speaks clearly. It makes no mistakes. It is infallible and unerring in its judgments. All we have to do is read it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize it, and obey it. I want you to notice also, though, that wisdom can be refused. Wisdom refused. Look at verse 6. The Bible says in verse 5 that if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God, who giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not, and he will give it to him. But then the Bible qualifies that statement in verse 6. It says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. I always read that word waver and I thought of a, something that was shivering for fear. And when I read that verse, I think, well, I can't be fearful in the presence of the Lord and I, can't, I just have to ask very definitively and say, God, this is what I need and just believe that I'm going to get it. But that's not what the word wavereth means. The word mean, wavereth is like the wave that is driven by the wind and the sea, it means just being tossed all over the place. In other words, it means that when I go to God and ask him for wisdom, I run around to everybody else looking for wisdom as well. That I'm just kind of helter-skelter about my approach to the situation. You see, when I ask God for something, if I start asking everybody else, I'm really not trusting at all, am I? And that's what the mean word means by the mean wavering. It's like I'm going to have a backup plan just in case God doesn't come through. And so we must avoid that at all costs and the Bible says if we're going to ask, ask in faith, nothing wavering, believing that God has the right answer. That God knows the end from the beginning. Wisdom can be refused because of indecision. And like anything else, prayer has rules. John chapter 15, verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Second Chronicles 7, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so when we struggle with making that decision, am I going to trust God? Or am I going to try to find the answer on my own? Then we are going to miss out on God's wisdom. There are rules to prayer. So ask nothing wavering. So we see the indecision in letter B. We see an illustration. The illustration I've already shared with you. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Unstable. Tossed to and fro. Not knowing where to trust or where to look. That's like the one that Doesn't ask God properly. And then we see some information in verse 7. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. I told you that James can be blunt at times. And here's one of those verses. And if you were reading this in the Greek, it's like a hammer that hits him right between the eyes. You're not getting anything. Your faith is small. You're wavering. You're trying to rely upon your own devices. So he gives him the information. Our indecision could cause our prayers not to be answered. Illustrated by a wave tossed by the sea. And now James gives us this information or some facts about a wavering condition. First of all, it's a spiritual law. Verse 7 is a spiritual law. Mark that in your Bible because it's very important. When you say, what what do you mean by a spiritual law? Let me see if I can illustrate. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also what? Reap. That's a spiritual law. It's a definitive statement that is made in Scripture that we can apply and know that it is true every single time. That's what a spiritual law is. All right? There's hundreds of them in the Bible. And here's another. Let not that man think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. It is a definitive statement that you can take to the bank. If we ask God, wavering in our faith, having a backup plan then we are not fulfilling his will for our lives. It is a spiritual law, but there's also a social law. Look at verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is a commentary on that man. A double-minded man literally means somebody that has two hearts. His heart is pursuing two different things at once. It's like somebody that's in love with two people and they can't decide who they might marry. It's somebody that comes to a crossroads and can't decide which road to take. It's somebody that's been offered two lucrative jobs and they can't decide which one God wants them to have. It's like standing at a bus stop and not deciding whether or not you really want to take the trip. And so the bus closes its door and it moves on. But the fact is this your indecision was a decision. You made the decision to stay behind. Do you know that there's millions of people that reject Christ every day because of that very fact? Well, I don't know if I'm ready to commit. And bang, it's passed them by. God said in the Old Testament, my spirit shall not always strive with man. He was talking about the condition of a lost and dying world before the flood. But I believe it's an illustration of of these days that God, His Spirit, strives with men and His Holy Spirit beckons men to come to Jesus Christ. But the day will soon pass. And either that person will go home or the rapture will come or the doors will close. Maybe they'll be turned over to a reprobate mind or what have you, but we must make the decision to follow Christ. And so indecision can cause us as a social commentary. Joshua 24, verse 15, tells us to choose, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the God of your fathers serve that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So trials have come for our enlargement. They've come, secondly, I've lost my note there, For our enlightenment, to teach us some things, to show us some things. And thirdly, letter C, for our ennoblement. You say, what's an ennoblement? Sometimes when you're alliterating, it's hard to find the right word. Ennoblement means for a crowning achievement. An ennoblement. It means to grant a degree. When we we give uh, diplomas to the students when they graduate high school, the proper term is the ennoblement of those students. We are granting them those degrees or those diplomas. And we see in the scriptures in verse nine, there is an ennoblement. The Bible says, "Let the brother of low degree rejoice and he is exalted. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted." Trials are for our enlargement. They help us grow. And for our enlightenment, they help us realize our need for God and his wisdom. But they're also for our ennoblement, they advance those of humility and low degree. In other words, when we come to God with the proper humility, You see, trials will humble you. They will. They'll bring you down a notch. And when we go to God with hat in hand and with a humble spirit and the right heart's attitude, the Bible says this, let the brother of low degree rejoice. That that phrase, low degree, speaks of humility. It's not talking about somebody that is poor and destitute and without. It's talking about somebody that's humble before the Lord. The Bible uses the same Greek word in Matthew chapter 5. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's what low degree is, meekness. Coming to God humbly. First Peter chapter 5 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You see, trials are for our ennoblement. God says, I'm going to humble you that I can exalt you. That he might receive glory and that we might be exalted through that trial. So we rejoice in advancement, number one. Number two, we rejoice in adversity. Verse 10 says, but the rich, and that he is made low, because of the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. So put that all together. It says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. The sentence does not end there. But the rich, and that he is made low. In other words, the rich are to rejoice that they are made low. You say, what do you mean? Should a rich man be excited that he is humbled and going through trials? Absolutely. You say, why? Because it is adversity that he is made low and humbled before God. This is talking about the love of riches. It's not talking about having things. Let's be honest, every person in this room is rich compared to 90% of the world. We really are. I I mean, I, I went into Togo, West Africa, where the Gross uh, salary of people is below the international poverty line. The people make on average $1.25 dollar a day. They say, "Oh, but things are cheaper there." Yeah, che- things are cheaper there, but you know, a coffee still costs a dollar and a half, and it st- still costs money to go places and eat and do all those things. It still costs if you want to have electricity in your home. It costs money. So. We are very rich people, but it's the love of those riches that is the danger. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but is withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. That's, that's the key, in his ways. It's not wrong to have things, but it's wrong when things have you. The rich man perisheth in his ways. In other words, he was not able to humble himself. So rejoice in adversity because they, they bring you low. And the example is, is this rich implying one who trusts in his riches to solve his problems. Boy, we often do that, don't we? Some people are so blessed and thank God for it. But you've never had to pray for a meal. You've never had to pray for God to supply your next mortgage payment. And we thank God for those things, don't get me wrong. But when trials come, they bring us to a point where we really begin to rely upon God and trust in Him. So rejoice in adversity, the example is the rich. And then there's a valid expectation. One who trusts in the deceitful riches and the cares of this world, as in the parable of sower, can expect their fruit to be choked out. In verse 11 it says, The grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. There's no fruit in it, in trusting in riches, but there is great benefit in trusting in God. So secondly tonight, testing is for our profit. I don't know if I'm going to get all the way through. Matter of fact, we may just stop right there because it's five to eight and we need to pray yet. So we'll finish this up next week. First of all, testing has a purpose. Number one, that's all we've covered so far. Testing has a purpose. Next week we'll start at testing is for our profit. All right? I know you don't believe it right now, but trust me, God has a bonus plan in store. All right? Let's have Pastor McPherson come. He's going to share a missionary letter with us. Take out your prayer lists. Now, I left you some homework there. I hope that maybe you'll take up the challenge. You'll notice. I just challenge you read the book of James. Read it every day, all right? It's five chapters. It'll only take you about 20 minutes or so. But just read it and absorb it. It'll help prepare you for our lessons every week, all right?